Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, Phil Goldfeder, away this week and coming to you from the springtime winter wonderland of Long Island, where, uh, well, I don't want to say we're snowed in, but this is some heavy snow and wow. It's kind of a metaphor for what's going on in Washington these days, just slow and sloggy and really uh, causing a lot of loss of productivity. But that doesn't cause a lack of news because there's a lot of headlines, an incredible amount of headlines. This week, uh, we're here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And, well, let's just start first and foremost with, with, I mean, there's like 50 headlines going on this week. I'm just going to run through really quickly. Going to have a little bit of a short show this week. Um, get pre-Pesach, lot to do. Um, but certainly a lot to discuss. Now, the government is about to shut down yet again, right? Because we like to the end of this week, the government is, is, is going to shut down. And, yeah, you feel like you've seen this movie before or you've seen this show before, you've seen this commercial before, whatever it is. But uh, Washington kind of lurches forward from crisis to crisis, if you will, unable to kind of really get big things done. Yes, tax reform. Yes, it was done. Um, but there are a lot of issues and misgivings with it and a lot of the things that's going on in Washington in general, have not exactly been the epitome of good government, uh, as we have seen. So let's just kind of get through a couple, you know, big things that kind of, <clears throat> that are kind of shaping the week. And it doesn't, it's a kind of unclear, it's kind of unclear as to whether the House is going to pass this uh, $1.3 trillion spending bill. Uh, by the way, we should also note that the the national debt is up to $21 trillion. Now, we had said before that this the president of this administration said that they were going to tackle the debt, they were going to tackle the deficit. Uh, not exactly the same thing. The deficit contributes to the debt, but the overall debt has definitely expanded and will continue to expand, um, it seems, under this administration, despite the fact that they were going to tackle it. And... Well, what we're seeing right now is just really no effort, whereas Republicans used to be fiscal, good fiscal stewards. That's kind of thrown out the window. Now, the Freedom Caucus is revolting, and they're saying they're not going to support this. So the question is, will this measure now be passed together with Democratic votes, which traditionally the Republicans don't like to do? It's something called the Hastert Rule that's been in place uh, for about uh, 20 years on the Republican side, uh, maybe a little less, but... Um, and the Hastert rule says that you must have a majority of Republicans, enough Republican votes to pass something. We don't, we're not going to pass something in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, so that is the dilemma that Republican leaders have. Now, the other thing, of course, is that the president is not uh, is not exactly happy with some of the things in this bill, but he's willing to go along with it. Along with it. And what is astounding here, and I know most people are not thinking about it because they're not thinking about November when March, although you know there is snow on the ground uh, here in the Northeast, but they're not necessarily thinking about November. But this is probably this spending bill is probably the last piece of major legislation that is going to be passed this year. That before the midterms, you know, that is the interesting thing about our political system is that it will kind of shut down and be frozen in place from now 
until November. And if you want to get, <clears throat> excuse me, if you want to get big things done, well, that's kind of, that's kind of done. You know, that's not really going to happen. Uh, some of the big things that they need to do really is, you know, entitlement reform. Uh, they need to go ahead and actually fix the healthcare system, which you know, one, one way or the other, you know, repeal Obamacare, don't repeal Obamacare, but you got to fix the system. The system is just, it, I, I'm not the only one out there whose healthcare costs are just skyrocketing every single year. I mean, renewal after renewal, it's just, it's quite incredible how much, of course, you know, I, I never believed it when Obama said that their costs are going to go down and it didn't happen and it hasn't happened. Maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it's just not, it's just not happening. Um, and it's just incredible what's, what's going on. Um, the other big thing as far as Washington is concerned and not to make too much out of a phone call, but it's pretty, it's pretty telling that the president was made a, a phone call to Vladimir Putin after his election. And look, it's not, doesn't take anybody, if you believe in democracy, Russia is not. It's not a free and fair democracy that we, that we love, we, competitive democracy where candidates send a free flow of ideas and people aren't intimidated and jailed and the like. And, you know, we saw a former Russian spy who has been poisoned is fighting for his life in England. I mean, Russia is a, um, well, it is what it is. Uh, and the president was told specifically, according to the Washington Post and according to somebody who obviously leaked this very sensitive material, in all caps, do not congratulate Vladimir Putin on his victory. Now, the president's free to ignore that. He's free to say, hey, I can do what I want. It's my relationship. It's a one-on-one. -on -one. And to do that. But you should at least take the advice of your people, your experts who are there, who are saying to you, why, as the leader of the free world, are you endorsing the election of somebody who clearly it does not abide by the rules of democracy and freedom? And as if you're abdicating that leadership position, if you're abdicating that position as leader of the free world, well, it's pretty serious. I mean, that's a serious that's a serious change on the part of the United States to have done that. Now, either the president didn't read the briefing, which of course itself is a little bit troubling because you can't, as president of the United States, be expected to know everything all the time and you have to rely on the people around you to give you, it's called good staff work and any elected official who at a certain level has, has people who are going to prepare things for them and they, they should read them, they should look at them. So either, or he read it and he ignored it. He just ignored the advice of his advisors. And, you know, that seems to be a, a pretty typical thing for, for the president. But then to go ahead and essentially try and have it both ways at the press briefing is to say, well... Um, the president, you know, not to just kind of own it and say the president's free to do what he wants, but basically to say, well, we have no responsibility towards Russia uh, to tell them what to do. We can't tell other countries what to do. Well, that's true. Nobody's suggesting that you should tell Russia how to conduct its election, but that doesn't mean we need to endorse their lack of democracy. That's like saying that calling Xi, President Xi of China and saying, wow, congratulations on your victory. Well, he wasn't, he didn't win a vote. 
and neither really did Vladimir Putin win a free and fair vote. And then to also, of course, not bring up Russia's election meddling, which the White House seems to constantly say that the president does concern the president, he has condemned it, blah, etc. Well, it just doesn't show anything. The soft spot that the president has for, for Russia that he just doesn't have, uh, for, that he that he reserves pretty much only for Putin, is 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 befuddling. I don't want to say it's astounding. It just it just doesn't it defies any logic, and he has no problem tackling others. But and it's almost on a personal note because the we have actually done sanctions. We there are sanctions. There have been things that the United States has done to penalize Russia over this course of this administration, but on a personal basis, and the president makes it so personal and on Twitter, and from the White House podium, they have not been willing to take on Putin. And it is befuddling. It is shocking. It is just, and it doesn't seem to contribute to our national security. The other point of this, and I think that a lot of Republicans pointed it out correctly, is the leak of this very sensitive material, which is clearly intended just to embarrass the president. Now, you might have great intentions if you're the person who actually did this and say, well, national security is at risk. But if you don't believe that the president is capable of doing the job or is doing the right job, really, why are you there? Why are you sitting there? Yeah, okay, proxy, I can, I'm here to prevent him from a catastrophe. Well, that's, that's like, heavy lift. I mean, to say that you, whoever the leaker is, is the person standing to save the Republic. And I'm the person who is going to make sure that everything, you know, that the that the country is is safe and sound. You leave that. That's a pretty awesome uh, ego to have done that. And, and I don't think, and in the end, yes, everybody takes an oath to the Constitution and to the president, but the president does deserve to have people around him who are not going to run to the newspapers the second they do something he doesn't like. He is, of course, entitled to make these decisions. I think they're bad decisions, but he is entitled to make these decisions. He's entitled to to style the relationship with Russia as he wants to, as he sees fit. And, well, you know, that's, that's really the, the way it should work. If you don't have that, uh, even a scintilla of personal loyalty, you're really in the wrong place and in the wrong job. And you might feel that you're serving your country appropriately, but maybe you need to serve it with somebody else. Now, the other big note as far as, let's say, leakers or uh, foreign entanglements is a, what I believe is to kind of be a bombshell uh, story about um, uh, Jared Kushner's relationship with MBS Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who is on a whirlwind tour uh, love fest, actually, with you say, with the United States uh, here. And the Saudis have a very uh, robust agenda. They want to isolate Qatar, and they're still pursuing that, and they have, want to isolate Iran, uh, more actually more than Qatar, but they are uh, you know, they have been, the, the relationship with Saudi Arabia and the United States has kind of never been closer than under this administration. Apparently, it's because of this personal relationship between Jared Kushner and uh, MBS. And the they are saying that, and the timing, of course, you know, coincidental, but Jared Kushner take a, took a secret trip to Saudi Arabia a couple months ago, 
didn't bring, didn't have the ambassador with him. Didn't, this this seems to be a trend, by the way. Jared Kushner goes to Mexico. I think we discussed this last week and doesn't bring the ambassador with him. So he's kind of doing this freelance foreign policy. And he goes there and they say that he gave names of people who were disloyal to the crown prince and to the king. And a couple of days later, there was a crackdown. These people were locked up. Uh, one of them died. Some of them were apparently tortured. Uh, most of them were kind of put in a Ritz-Carlton hotel and treated very nicely and allowed to do, but billions of dollars were confiscated from these people. And yes, could be absolutely coincidence, but if in fact, and this could be, and look, the United States has done this before as far as helped friendly regimes uh, with intelligence, and it's not necessarily wrong, but if he, if Kushner was in fact freelancing, because apparently he went there by himself without national security staff, that's very, very troubling, uh, particularly because he doesn't have a security clearance and it only had a temporary security clearance at the time. And should he be the one? Why do we not have the CIA director? Why do we not have, if we're going to deal in this kind of black ops type of thing, which, as I said, countries need to do that. But should Jared Kushner be the one doing that? And especially with his exposure on the real estate side, that essentially MBS and others and the Emiratis are saying that they own him because they know that he how badly his family real estate empire needs money. Uh, that is exactly the compromising situation that we don't want our officials to be in. And look, I know and I feel the same way. I, I think that uh, particularly on issues that we care about as the Jewish community, Jared Kushner has been a very positive force. I mean, I, th I, I can't think of actually, uh, I mean, this administration overall, David Friedman, Jason Greenblatt, Jared Kushner have been an incredibly positive force. But I don't understand the idea of such a novice slash neophyte getting in so deep on some of these extraordinarily sensitive issues to be the one. And why would you want the president's son-in-law to be the one there giving, if in fact this happened, but you know, the timing, I mean, this is the allegation. It, would you want him to be the one delivering this? It's That's kind of something that, yeah, it should be somebody who nobody knows, who has no public profile, will never get written about because nobody knows who that person is. Like you see in the movies, like it's like nameless, faceless man and, you know, dark shadows. This is like a dark shadow type of thing that nobody would, nobody should know about. And, you know, they're picking up, we're picking up intelligence on the fact that many countries around the world feel that they are able to manipulate Jared Kushner. Not a good situation uh, for anybody to be in, to kind of be the mark, to be the guy, okay, let's go after him. And, uh, you know, troubling, troubling. Um, but it's, uh, there's a lot of things about this White House that are unorthodox and this administration that are unorthodox. And uh, look, it's it's going. Let's see. Let's see how it goes. Uh, they did appoint an ambassador this week, uh, uh, or sorry, nominate an ambassador, uh, our Republican chairman here in Nassau County. Uh, Joe Mondello as the ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago. Hopefully that will get confirmed. Uh, so that's big, big doings. And uh, the travel scandal continues uh, just more and more. Scott Pruitt, EPA administrator, spending uh, more than $100,000 in first class flights. Ryan Zinke bringing a security detail to Europe, to Greece and Turkey on his 25th wedding anniversary. You know, this is the stuff I, I remember back to the 90s and the, the the when the 
Republicans swept out the Democrats because of spending, because of just these stories of Washington not being responsive and spend is just going ahead and taking the taxpayers' money and you know spending it like water. These are the kinds of stories that that just drip out there and that frustrate and annoy the voters. And it doesn't take a, a very you know people are angry at Washington. I don't know if that's people should have to understand from Trump's election that people are angry at the establishment. And when the establishment goes ahead and spends and 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 goes ahead and flies around the world on taxpayer dime in first class seats and takes a huge security detail, why does the Interior Secretary of the United States on a private vacation need a security detail with him? Now, you remember, I don't know how many people, but it's going to be at least two people on any security detail flying with you and, you know, and you pay them. You're paying them you know, for a full, uh, you know, full salary for, you know, for a full day is for that entire time that they're there. I don't know. Shocking to me. But, yeah. Okay. Primary this week that just happened. The Illinois primary uh, that, uh, real, that was, has some real uh, heavy hitters in it. Uh, Governor Bruce Rauner, very wealthy man himself, spent a ton of money and barely squeaked by an unknown state senator in Illinois, uh, 51-49. Doesn't, you know, Rauner was probably already the most vulnerable governor, Republican governor in the country uh, because Illinois is so blue and Trump is so unpopular there. But Rauner barely made it through the primary. Now he faces J.B. Pritzker uh, of the Pritzker family, Hyatt Hotels. Uh, Penny Pritzker was the Commerce Secretary in the Obama administration. And Pritzker spent $70 million of his money on the Democratic primary, sailed to victory, and uh, I, I have to say, I mean, Rauner is, is you know, he, he has tried very hard to upend the Illinois establishment. It's going to be very tough. But more interesting of a race is this inter, or sorry, intra-democratic fight between liberals and moderate Democrats. And Dan Lipinski, congressman, incumbent congressman in, the, in Chicago and the Chicago suburbs on the south side, has uh, squeaked by. Uh, a spirited challenge from the left. And, you know, if you looked at last week, you said, oh, we talked about the recipe for success for in the Pittsburgh, I'm sorry, the Pittsburgh area uh, special election where Condor Lamb won in Pennsylvania. And the recipe for success is run as a moderate in these districts. You got to be a blue collar. You got to go ahead and embrace the, the forgotten voters that the Democrats have kind of taken for granted. And yet you have a guy who is... Uh, you know, comes from an important political family in Illinois. Yes, okay, so he's pro-life. So you're saying in, there's no room for somebody who's pro-life in the Democratic uh, Party. And number two, he was hawkish on foreign policy. He opposed the Iran deal. And J Street went after him because of that. They supported the opponent, um, which in and of itself is just is, is so incredible. Um, you know, the J Street whole thing about, well, being pro-Israel, pro-peace, and but we're going to go after people who are not even Democrats. We're going to go after people who are not didn't support the Iran deal, right? You have to love the Iran deal so much that if you don't support it as a Democrat, we're going to go after you with a primary. And it's actually, I, I it, it's it is the many sorry many uh, many Democrats and you know, on the progressive side have tried to get rid of. Dan Lipitsky because they feel that he is a uh, that he is too right wing for the Democratic Party. But doesn't the Democratic Party in a lot of areas don't they see 
the fact that in a lot of areas of the country, they have lost their appeal. They need to moderate. You need to have people in the center. I mean, the Republican Party is the same way. The Republican Party is also getting rid of its moderates on the, through primaries. But you, you would think that just the fact that last week, you know, you should have learned, they should have learned a lesson. Um, you know, kind of, a, you see a lot of progressives are kind of unapologetic about it. Let's, we got to get rid of the, um, we got to get rid of people who don't toe the line, who aren't super liberal on the Democratic side. And that is not, you can't just run, you can't just coast to victory and think, I'm sorry, coast and think you're going to achieve victory in 2018 in the midterms if you are just say, well, we're going to go far left as a Democratic Party, but it's enough because everybody hates the president and hates Trump and hates the, what the Republicans have done. I don't know that's a winning, uh, that is a winning formula. Uh, if you will. And, you know, we have a similar thing going on in New York uh, now. Cynthia Nixon of Sex and the City fame uh, has announced that she is going to challenge Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, in a Democratic primary. And from the left. And she is, you know, saying that Cuomo is not progressive enough and he doesn't, he's too centrist. And, you know, look, why I might have my own feelings with regard to uh, New York politics. Uh, Cynthia Nixon is just running for one reason is because, well, we can't have moderates in the Democrat. You know, New York is a progressive state, so we shouldn't allow moderates uh, in the Democratic Party. I mean, again, this is the same thing that the Republicans are doing to each other as well. And we see that on both sides, that this purge of moderate uh, elected officials out there is it's just it's bad long term for the country. It's bad long term for both parties. And Cynthia Nixon actually has been a uh, supporter of Jewish Voices for Peace. Um, she is a, you know, she is a not Jewish. Uh, she is a, uh, she is a lesbian and she is a member, actually apparently a frequent participant in Congregation Bet Simchat Torah, which is in the, uh, in the village. It is the largest gay and lesbian synagogue. And Cynthia Nixon really represents that kind of far left ideal of you know pro BDS she called uh, she called on uh, uh, academics to boycott Israel together with other uh, stars and you know she it's amazing that somebody would feel comfortable running in New York in a Democratic primary that Jewish voters used to dominate or sorry not dominate but such a big piece of the Democratic primary electorate in New York. And they used to have that ability to really direct uh, direct the the party, especially in New York City. And it's kind of you see some how far left the Democratic Party has moved. That somebody like Cynthia Nixon now thinks that they have a formula possibly to go ahead and be essentially anti-Israel, um, or at least whatever I, what I perceive to be anti-Israel, and still have a viable chance at going at making inroads in the Democratic Party. And we see that from Kristen Gillibrand as well, the sitting state senator who has who has flip-flopped on BDS, uh, originally supported anti-BDS legislation in Congress, and then stepped back and then no longer uh, supported it, which would, I think would be shocking for a New York politician uh, a little while ago. So uh, can Cynthia Nixon win? I don't think so. Can she do damage to, to Governor Cuomo in his reelection? I certainly think so. Uh, hopefully we'll get Phil's opinion on this next week. But 
what does she what does she have to do? Well, look, she could get the Working Families Party line, which is a you know leftist line here in New, here in New York. And uh, if she does that, that has that means that Cuomo has somebody on the general election ballot to his left. It means that the Republican only has to get you know maybe forty five percent to win, not fifty one percent, in order. To beat him, and that potentially is achievable. Rob Astorino, four years ago, uh, got forty-one percent of the vote, um, and you know it is something that is possible in order to do that. So we see on both sides of you know it, we we've seen examples of this on the Republican side, uh, certainly where it's where we have uh, everybody looking to their right, and they have to you know essentially lurching far right in order to make in order to try and uh, save themselves with regard to primaries and we see it on the left as well and we see that if you're if you stray too far from democratic uh, orthodoxies and if you trade too far from progressive from the progressive wing of the party you are going to get a challenge and you're going to get a primary and we see that you know just happened in Illinois and we see that with uh, Governor Cuomo here in New York now of course uh as I mentioned, Cynthia Nixon seems to be, or at least a stalking horse or a proxy for the governor's political arch rival, Mayor Bill de Blasio. And de Blasio, I think, is repaying a last time around four years ago. De Blasio really saved Governor Cuomo in salvaging the Working Farm Families Party endorsement for him. And uh, Cuomo did not return the favor, at least, uh, at least not in the way that we think. But uh, we, you know, we shall see as this race progresses over the coming months as to see what was happening. Uh, Louise Slaughter up in upstate New York passed away, um, and there's going to be an interesting battle for that seat. The interesting thing, of course, is that the primary petitions, so the primary uh, for congressional primary in New York is in June, and the petitions are actually due in like two weeks uh, April 12th. So whoever wants to get on the ballot for that, and some people might not have taken a look at that race if they were not going ahead at, because they didn't want, because she was an incumbent. Now they're all of a sudden look, taking a look at that race. They have two weeks to collect petitions to get on that ballot uh, up in the Rochester area. So we will see politics, always a fun business, always exciting to see what's going on. And we will uh, certainly follow as we lead up to 2018 here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you for listening here to Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.